This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Hamilton police are teaming up with the Anti-Violence Against Women Advocates Group uh, to review some 700 sexual assault cases since uh, 2010, focusing uh, especially on times when police have deemed these cases to be unfounded. Now, I understand that some people uh, get hung up on wordsmithing, but uh, there was a great deal of uh, debate and contentious uh, conversation, shall we say, about uh, a report that came out of the Globe and Mail some weeks ago now about the number of uh, sexual assault allegations that were deemed to be unfounded, and they actually ranked uh, different communities. And Hamilton's numbers, according to the Globe and Mail anyway, were not very good. Well, it's uh, led to more dialogue, which leads to the formation of this uh, force that are going to work together. And uh, Inspector Dave Hennick from Hamilton Police Services, who oversees the sexual assault uh, group at uh, Hamilton Police Services, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, Dave. How are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having us on. Well, I appreciate the uh, the opportunity to do this. I mean, you and I talked uh, just after the Globe and Mail report being public uh, some weeks ago right now, and uh, there was uh, a, a lot of a, a conflict, I guess, about the numbers and uh, and then statements about numbers that you had that weren't official numbers that the Globe and Mail had, et cetera. Where are we on this now, Dave? Okay, well, what we've done is we've met with our, our community partners, and a working group has been formed. So uh, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be reviewing um, partnership with our community partners. Uh, we're going to be looking at our policies, uh, our training, uh, supervision and oversight in the area of the sexual assault, our record ma- records management, and um, obviously the big and important part of uh, this will be the community involvement and the involvement um, with the specialty of the community in the area of sexual assault. So we have... Uh, the Sexual Assault Center of Hamilton and Area, Hamilton Health Sciences, and um, other community partners coming forward to help us. Was was there a, an apples and oranges thing going on here, Dave, when, when different sets of numbers were being compared? Well, I, think, I mean, I think, Bill, I think that the focus of the review really needs to be on improving uh, service delivery. The the numbers and that formed part of the discussion, how we got to those numbers and the numbers that are being reported not just from the Hamilton Police Service, but across the province and across Canada, um, will form part of our review and moving forward on how those numbers are reported to the community, just to make sure that we ha- that we as an organization have a better understanding of uh, the work and uh, the community as well. I mean, one of the things that came out of the Globe and Mail article was, uh, I-, I think that shocked a lot, a lot of us, was there didn't seem to be any uniformity in, in how data was being gathered here, and that was somewhat problematic. That's right, and that and that may have contributed to some of the discussions for sure. Why hasn't there? Why isn't there a, a common uh, protocol, a common uh, methodology for these sorts of things across the province, Dave? I know that's not you know in your wheelhouse, but I mean it seems somewhat surprising that we seem to be talking in different levels at, uh, when we start comparing uh, comparing some of these numbers. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't really think it's appropriate for me to to comment. I don't really have the understanding to do that, to speak. I can speak about what we do here at Hamilton Police and how we, we capture our stats. And the the way stats are collected and reported for UCR coding, and I'm, I'm not an expert in that area, um, but in the actual sex assault unit proper, we, we capture stats at a more granular level so that we can understand the trends that are happening in the community. And um, so that those numbers sometimes or often will uh, be different, and uh, so because we're looking at capturing different numbers, so explain that for us. I mean, because you mentioned that before, and an awful lot of people seem to be confused by that—that uh, that you have official records and then you have unofficial records. Why? Why are the two sets of numbers? 
I, I would. I don't think it's um, one's official and one's not official. They're both the the both. Uh, they're both official numbers. But in the unit specific, the people that do that work day in and day out have a greater understanding uh, of the work. And so for me, I know when I look at the stats that are held within the sexual assault unit, I can tell you that you know the majority of the cases of sexual assault that were reported to our police service, um, if if you're going to be sexually assaulted, it's by someone who knows you. And I, I wouldn't have that data because the uniform crime reporting, my understanding, doesn't get to that granular level. So I wouldn't have the understanding of, say, that component of the work unless we chose to track that ourselves within the office. And that's kind of, a, that's kind of an example. So I can confidently go to the community and say, you know what, if when we investigate these incidents of sexual assault, if you're going to be sexually assaulted, it's more likely by someone who knows you. And then I have the statistics to back it up because we're doing that work within the office and it provides a better understanding for myself as a, a commander of that area and for the detectives who work in that area. One of the things, anytime we get a, a group like this together, Hamilton Police Services and some of these groups uh, that are going to be working with you here in this uh, the, the advocates, of course, for any violence uh, pro- protocols here, is t- is to learn from each other. And and what what at this point, going into this right now, Dave, what are you looking to get out of this whole exercise? Well, we're we're always open to providing a better level of service uh, to victims of sexual assault, and our community partners, they're the subject matter experts uh, in this area, and they can provide insight uh, to us on 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 gaps in service that they are hearing from victims who come to us to report sexual assaults. And so that's, I mean, we have strong working relationships with them already. We meet several times a year um, with our Chiefs Women's Advisory Committee and several of our subcommittees. Um, so we have strong relationships with them. But specifically, this review, I think, will be great because it will give us an opportunity to spend more time together and for them to it'll really give us a mechanism for them to provide that insight to us on uh, survivors' experiences. One of the uh, alarming statistics, and we talked to Lenore Lukasik-Foss, of course, from the Sexual Assault Center here in Hamilton, Sasha, uh, was the number of, well, and again, I guess it's hard to actually get a hard and fast number on this, uh, sexual assaults that go unreported. Uh, Some are suggesting that maybe that's because people don't have faith in the system. And that doesn't mean exclusively police services. It means the system, the judicial system at, at large. How do, you, how do you address something like that, Dave? I mean, is, is, it, is it within your, your realm here to try to, to increase confidence in the system for people that are assaulted like this to know that they can go forward? Absolutely. I, I believe that's our responsibility. We have to uh, build trust with our community, and we do that through, our, through community events, through, um, through uh, community policing and um, basically being out and interacting with all of our communities on a regular basis and through some of our um, um, committee work and stuff like that out in the committee. And if so if the community has faith in us that we can do our work and that we're approaching it the right way and they've had the opportunity to build those relationships with us, it's going to help to build that trust so that they know they can come forward and report the incidents to us and they're going to know that, um, that we're working to make sure to serve them better. And it, it may not always lead... Uh, to the case going to court, um, but it may it it may be just in how we're dealing with them or how we're um, spending time with the victims and understanding uh, their needs. And some 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 victims just choose to report the incident, and and 
we take that information in, we document it for them. And so it's really about being victim-centered and making sure that we're listening to people uh, when we approach this work. How does, how does your crew uh, approach a situation like this when somebody reports a, an alleged sexual assault in a, in a case like this? Uh, who do you talk to? I mean, because oftentimes uh, when we've talked to victims that have been on this program, uh, and I'm sure you've you've had the same experience, Dave, and you, when you've talked to people that have reported these things, the, the, the concern they have and the fear they have more often than not is, well, it's going to be my word against the other person. And, and you know, how do, how do police discern whether or not it's it's founded or unfounded, uh, really just based on that kind of information? Or, or is there more that you look at? Well, we have some very highly trained detectives that work in our victims of crime section, and that includes both our child abuse branch and our sexual assault unit. They receive training on interviews, on uh, sexual assault, on major case management. Um, also, and we have several branches throughout our organization that support them. So technology is a really big um, piece of the puzzle right now where our sexual assault unit is uh, leaning quite heavily on our techno- uh, technological crime unit uh, to support uh, the work in sexual assault investigations and cab investigations. Uh, many, many offenders are carrying uh, cell phones with them and using cell phones and social media um, as part of the communication with the victims. And so we can use all of those uh, items and devices and pieces of evidence to help support um, the investigation. So science is obviously a part of this then. Yep, and, and and really good old-fashioned police work is sitting down, taking the time to talk to victims, and then um, listening, truly listening to what uh, everyone has to say, and then when a, when a witness is identified, following up with that witness and following up with the evidence and making sure that we continue to follow the, the evidence as that, and, and, and that really guides our work. Uh, I'm getting an email here just as you and I are having this conversation. We're speaking with uh, Inspector Dave Hennick, of course, Hamilton Police Services, uh, talking about this uh, collaboration that's going to be happening between the Anti-Violence Against Women Advocates and, of course, Hamilton Police Services. Uh, this is from uh, Linda, who was uh, asking the question. Uh, when a, 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 Well, she's saying a case. Uh, I assume she means a, an, an alleged sexual assault is reported. Uh, and it is deemed to be unfounded. Is that because police don't think anything happened or is it that they don't think there's any chance of a conviction? No. So um, if, if, if we use the term unfounded in, at the conclusion of one of our investigations, it's because an investigation has been completed and uh, no offense of the law has been determined. So they've, the investigator has determined that no sexual assault has taken place. A lot of times we use a different code for, so if a victim comes forward and says, um, here's what's happened to me, um, but I really don't feel comfortable uh, going through the court process, but I just want you to know because maybe the offender has access to um, to victims again or maybe is starting to date somebody else who has kids, and they, they've heard that and they want us to be aware of it so that we can make those contacts with the Children's Aid Society and that their uh, sexual, por- uh, sexual assault has been reported to our uh, police service. So we would use a code... Um, that would be unsolved in that case because the case is not unfounded. It's just at the, and like I told you before, Bill, we're victim-centered. So if the victim says, you know what, Dave, we don't want to go forward with the case right now, I just want you guys to know I want it documented and I want you to follow up on the safety of the other children involved, then that's what we do. And that case would be concluded uh, as unsolved. Does I that help? 
Yeah, I think, and Linda, I hope that helps. Thanks so much for the email. And uh, always great to get that kind of response uh, as we're going through some of these segments here on the program. Uh, the other day, Dave, uh, Chief Eric Gert was in here uh, with the, the Chief's Town Hall on our program on CHML. Uh, and we, we had a brief conversation about this as well. And, and Chief Gert reiterated what you've just mentioned here about the exchange of information being so very important in this whole process. And I, I asked you just a few minutes ago about what you hope to get out of this. What what do you hope to, to be able to impart to, to these groups that are going to be working with you here uh, in that exchange of information? What 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 do you need to tell them to, to reassure them that, uh, that, uh, that we can move forward together cooperatively in this? Well, my, my hope is that it, it... What, all, what it does is it strengthens our, our already existing strong partnership with our community. So we're going to be providing training to them on uh, sexual assaults, how we investigate them, how we go about that, uh, major case management and interviewing. So we're going to probably provide a couple days of training, and we're just working on that what that looks like right now. And it's just so that they understand a bit of the lens on how we approach the cases. And then we're going to be looking to them uh, to help train us on the messages that don't always make it back to us. So some victims of sexual assault deal directly with the sexual assault centers but don't want to involve the police and for a variety of reasons. And so that insight is critical for us to get better at what we do. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to that and, of course, um, building stronger relationships with, uh, with our community partners. Do those statistics get included? I mean, I mean, even if they don't go to the police service, but they do go to one of these other support agencies right now to, to report an, an incident like that, uh, I, there may obviously be some sense of anonymity with the, the, the victims in situations like this, but do, do you get those numbers as, as another sexual assault? Because, I mean, that's one of the main concerns. I know you talked to us about that some weeks ago, that, uh, that the numbers are vastly underreported, not just in Hamilton, but just in about every community. No, it's it's uh, we we don't we don't get those numbers unless um, if the victim meets with a worker at a sexual assault center and through the conversations uh, with the staff at the center, um, the victim feels comfortable and wants to go forward with the prosecution in court. Then there's a mechanism in place for our workers there to get in touch with us to make sure that that's reported, and uh, so that happens on on a regular basis, but. It, it's really, um, it's like I said before, it's really victim-centered. So if the victim does not want to come forward, um, and, you know, most of these cases, uh, like I said before, is it's by someone who knows you that, sex, that has sexually assaulted you, someone usually in a position of trust or authority or over you. So it's, it's, I understand why some victims may not feel comfortable and may not want to report that to police. They may not want to go public with the information. But for those that do and that want to, um, we're here to support them in that process. And, and so every victim um, can be at a different stage of that process or, or may never want to go through uh, the court process. And, that, and that's okay. We have, we have supports built in through our in-house victim services branch um, and that can provide counseling uh, to to individuals who have been sexually assaulted. Uh, you can apply for that counseling, and our staff here in our victim services branch uh, will help support applicants in that process, whether or not they go forward um, with the court process as well. Dave, when's this whole thing going to start, uh, when you sit down with these people around the table and uh, these other advocate groups and, and, and try to get something done? And, and part B, I guess, to that is, is how long do you figure this is going to take? Well, we've already begun, so we've already met uh, on a couple of occasions, and 
we're in uh, constant communication with each other over email and cell phones and everything. But what we're doing right now is um, identifying the parameters of the internal review. So uh, we're going to be looking at the cases internally from 2010 to 2014, and we want to make sure that whatever tool that we're using to uh, review the unfounded cases, both in child abuse and sexual assault, is consistent so that when we report back to the community, um, we've approached the work with the same lens. And so we're just in the process of designing that now. And um, I expect that it's probably going to take somewhere between three to four months to complete the review. It's several hundred cases. We don't want to rush it. We want to make sure um, we're going through all the steps and that we're doing it properly and that we're um, working with our community partners to, to get that feedback as we go through every stage. At the end of the process, uh, can we expect a report on this or a, 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 maybe a revised protocol? I mean, what, what do you see as the end game here? Um, what I see in the end is uh, um, we'll be, it's my understanding that we'll be um, completing a report uh, to the police services board uh, at the conclusion of this, which, as you know, I don't know if it's, I expect that that, that report is going to be public, but that'll be a, a decision that's left up to the chief and the police services board. But I, I expect that that will be public because this is the whole point behind this process is to improve service delivery and um, uh, I feel confident in some of the steps that we've already undertaken going back to 2015 and uh, we'll be you know look forward to sharing that information with the community as we go ahead you're listening to the Bill Kelly show weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML Hamilton City Councilors have approved a new protocol that will mandate how the city will treat residents who are transgender and gender non-conforming uh, this protocol uh, went through a very long, long meeting yesterday morning at City Hall. Uh, the council chambers were packed for that. Cole Gately was there. Cole, of course, is an MA in adult education and community development, works in the Hamilton, in this city, rather, as a community-based educator. And uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about exactly what's been going on. Cole, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks very much. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the atmosphere there yesterday inside City Council. What what, what did you see? What did you uh, observe? Well, it was pretty. Uh, I arrived fairly early because I was quite nervous about everything. But um, so I was one of the first to arrive. But within ten minutes, uh, well, within about ten fifteen minutes, you could not move within the council chambers. All the gallery was full, and they had overflow chairs that had about uh, between twenty and. 30 people sitting there as well. Were you surprised by the turnout? Um, I knew that there would, had been a lot of organizing around getting people to come out and support, but uh, I was pretty, I was hoping it would be packed, but I also thought like, well, maybe this is just exciting because I'm a trans person, but uh, it was actually, um, I was very, very heartened to see, and I was pretty, I was a little bit surprised, but it was it was great. And to see all the cis allies there, but to see lots of trans people coming out was really great. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about how the meeting uh, transpired, because uh, when you get a packed chamber like this, and in some people's minds, this is, well, it is a very emotional topic. Uh, the emotions can can really kind of overrun the meeting. I, what was it orderly? Did you feel that everything ran according to the way it should have run? Yeah, it was very orderly. The chair kept everyone uh, in line, and uh, I mean, we were told not to um, have emotional outbursts, which involved clapping, and um, people generally ignored that <laughs> that uh, directive so uh, whenever um, somebody said so, you know what at the end of their delegation people were applauding and things but it was yeah it was definitely very orderly and there were no um, there were no uh, there was no outbursts or anger or anything like that 
I uh, talked about this on my commentary earlier this morning at eight ten this morning, and uh, I obviously I've just read reports. I was here when you guys were doing that yesterday at City Hall, but I, I thought there were some comments that were made by some of the presenters uh, yesterday, Cole, that were so poignant and so apropos to what was going on. Uh, one of them from Ty Jacob from McMaster, who just said, "Why must we come up and show that we are human enough?" Uh, in, in other words, this is wonderful that City Council has, has endorsed this. Well, they haven't endorsed it by the whole council yet, but that, that should happen on Wednesday. But the fact that you even had to do this had to be awfully frustrating. Yeah, I mean, seriously, uh, you know, there was loads of, you know, very uh, well, you know, researched um, evidence up there that, you know, trans women are absolutely no threat. In fact, you know, the person who is most vulnerable in a women's washroom is the trans woman herself. Trans women are women. There was a lot of, uh, you know, there was a little bit of um, uh, confusion about that amongst uh, some people who were against the protocol. But yeah, it was it was just awful. When Ty Jacobs spoke about why do we have to prove that we're human, um, it just really brought it all home. I even tweeted that out because I just thought it was like, I mean, how can you argue with that? We are human, and this is a human right. And um, and you know, when you think about, you know, for people saying that, you know, this is uh, the trans women are really men preying on other women is um, is just patently a lie, and um, there is absolutely zero evidence of um, a trans woman ever having attacked a, a woman in a public washroom or a child in a public washroom. Yet there is ample, ample, like legions of evidence of um, cisgender heterosexual men attacking women. So. Uh, well, this is and this has got to be part of the frustration. Uh, and and again, I, I give you and, and and the other presenters credit for staying within themselves and not getting overly emotional about this because an awful lot of the opposition to this whole protocol is really based on misinformation. I think I think uh, yeah, a lot of it is on misinformation. I mean, I'm I'm not really sure how much information somebody needs about someone else's private life. Um, in order to, you know, afford them human rights. But, uh, you know, there might be misinformation out there, but it's really based in assumptions. And if, I think if, a, a, you know, a thinking, thoughtful person sits down for one second and tries to think about, you know, what a trans person's life is like and, and what, the, what kind of um, struggles we have to go through, I think, you know, it won't take very long for you to understand that, you know, we don't even need so much information to develop compassion and to understand that we live in a society that is um, set up to favor men and women, which is absolutely fine. But, but the thing is that we, we now have trans people who are, you know, making ourselves even more known and saying that, you know, these archaic, you know, ways of looking at identity and looking at people and human beings are... Um, they're not working for us, and they're not working for us as long as um, institutions and cisgender people, um, you know, maintain that trans people are the other and should be somehow um, kept out or or controlled in some way. But this is this is the 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 current of a long line of of. of battles that have gone on about this and you know when you look at this historically uh, and and Cole you, we've talked about this in the past about how you know it, it used to be discrimination in the workplace it used to be you know whether uh, women had the right to control their body and then okay who are you allowed to marry who are you not allowed to marry and that went along ethnic lines religious lines and and, and gender lines too and and now uh, gender identity seems to be the, the flavor of the month for, for some people that just think well you know we want you to live the according to the way we want you to live 
not according to, to to what we have as a society. And it's it the hypocrisy is is really frustrating. I think for all of us, especially so for a lot of the people I think that made presentations yesterday. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I mean, if you know, if there's, I mean, Matthew Green, councillor for Ward Three, said um, this is the new human rights, um, and I, 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 you know, I agree with him that there is. I mean, if we've learned nothing from history, we need to learn from our past struggles around civil rights, around, um, uh, you know, around some of the issues that you were talking about. Um, we need to understand that you know, human rights aren't, you know conditional on, you know, who is more human. So um, it is pretty frustrating to sort of see, like, what have we learned from the civil rights movement? What have we learned from all the all the struggles that have gone on the backs of um, people who are oppressed over the ages? I really think that, you know, please let us start to transfer some of those um, those issues and those issues of human rights over to um, other people who are marginalized as well. Well, yeah, that's it's like that old argument, you know, who's going to be next? And I don't know the answer to yeah. that, but it's it's awfully it's awfully frustrating to see that we keep going along these these lines like this. Uh, did you get any sense at all of this passed unanimously at the committee level yesterday? Of course, but uh, it goes to city council. Uh, will is is this another battleground? Is this another place where you're going to have to make your presentation? Uh, uh, or as Ty said, are you going to have to prove that you're human enough to to let this thing go through? Or do you feel as if the, this 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 part of it anyway is over over now? I think this part is over for for I I, I do feel it's over. I mean, it really the negativity was just from a very small uh, handful of people who were there who were not part of council who are not part of uh, the municipal government. So there were lots of, you know, there were a few councillors there and staff, etc. And I, the feeling was definitely, I felt definitely very much that we were all there in solidarity. There was just, as I said, those few others who weren't, um, who were there in solidarity with each other, I guess. But um, I just, the feeling across the board, the mayor spoke so well, councillor Green, councillor Johnson, of course, um, who brought the motion forward, and um, you know others as well spoke uh, really well about it, and we're just asking clarifying questions. And I just felt that we this was our moment, and I, I had no there was no surprise at all that it was unanimously passed, and I have no doubt that it's going to pass with flying colors tomorrow as well. It was interesting as well that because uh, some people have classified this discussion along religious lines and, and said this is very much a religious issue. Uh, there are quite a few people that spoke yesterday uh, from various uh, religions in the community here that, in support of of the protocol, and, and and that had to be heartening. Oh, it was amazing. I mean, it was you know it was amazing to see uh, two Mennonite churches come out, uh, two rabbis come, one of whom is purportedly quite conservative, uh, or the the institution is quite conservative. They came out in in stellar support for us, the Sisters of St. Joseph. Um, other organizations came out, the Unitarians and uh, the United Church as well had sent a whole delegation. So there was there were there were lots of religious groups there who were completely in support of us. There were like three that were not, and um, but that, that's out of forty. So you know, thirty-seven that were in favor. Um, not all religious groups, but yeah, it was very heartening to see the um, to see religious groups across the spectrum come out and support as well. Cole, what about the content of the protocol itself? Are you satisfied with that? Does it go far enough? Does it touch all the bases you wanted to see touched? I think it's a, a fairly good protocol. I mean, it definitely, I mean, you know, it 
probably has to be tweaked because documents are dynamic and they always have to move with the times and as language um, evolves. I do think there's a maybe the glossary will need to be updated in a year or so. But um, but generally, I think that the protocol is pretty good, and um, it was definitely um, there were chances for uh, trans community members to be able to um, weigh in on the protocol earlier, uh, like late last year. And um, <clears throat> and so there were some uh, corrections made and amendments, and there were opportunities for people to send in their amendments. So um, we didn't get the final draft until a couple of days before the meeting, but uh, but um, there were drafts out there before that, and I think uh, people weighed in on it. So I, I think it's a good protocol, and it's definitely um, talking about the, the right stuff. That, you know, education needs to happen. I, I really hope that they follow through with the with all that, but I think that the entire city staff, councillors as well, need to um, be educated with uh, by trans people themselves to um, uh, to do that education. Well, and that means discussions on, on programs like this and, and, and in public forums so people can get some idea of of, of your life and, and of life and, and in this community uh, and the reaction to this. And, uh, and we need to hear the stories about the harassment that occurs and, and the discrimination that occurs because that, that, I think, puts it in context for people. And they, they need to understand that to get an understanding as to why a protocol like this is needed. Absolutely. And, uh, I mean, you know, we're, you know we, we had youth out yesterday as well as trans women. I mean, trans women are definitely uh, very vulnerable. And um, so it's really important that, uh, and, I mean, this is why this whole started because a trans woman was um, kicked out of the washroom. A public washroom but so i think that people are starting to educate themselves even the the counselors are sort of you know some of them aren't used to the language and they're sort of stumbling over the words but you know we're giving them we're going out there and and getting themselves being educated even in the meeting yesterday so i do think that um it, it you know it's very uh important and especially trans women are are particularly vulnerable and are particularly um um uh, you know, um, targeted um, by groups that want to say that uh, trans people are, are, you know, dangerous or what have you. So I think that we, that, yeah, this education needs to happen and um, it, you know, it needs to, um, it needs to occur where trans women have a voice and are able to educate everyone. But everyone also has a responsibility to educate themselves as well. Absolutely. You know? You know, Absolutely. Go on the internet and uh, and talk with trans people, but also do your own stuff and do your own thinking about human rights and what is right and what is decent. Well, because historically, this the, the, some of these same points that were made uh, have been used in in other arguments. I mean, you know, we were told as a society that if women had the the right to vote, that our society would be you know the worst for it. It's not. Uh, we were told that if people of the same gender and the same sexual preference were to be married, that our society would go to hell in a handcart. It hasn't. It's better as a result. And and the stories about you know trans women being dangerous. I mean, it's it's ridiculous, of course. But it, they need to understand. People need to get that. They understand that. And I think the protocol goes a long way towards doing that. Yeah, I think it definitely does. And uh, the fact that it's endorsed by a municipality. I mean, it seems to. It definitely is on the leading edge of some. Um, legislation across Canada, I think. And so uh, this is a really good example of a way to show an example to the citizens of Hamilton to say, you know, the mayor, the city council and the city itself as a, as a government um, supports trans people and that um, if you're going to be 
living in Hamilton, then you need to get on board with um, with uh, supporting human rights of all people. Well, from an, an ugly situation uh, that resulted in a human rights tribunal, uh, the, the I guess the silver lining in this whole thing, Cole, is that is that the the trans community and the city work together on this, along with others, uh, to make this happen, to make this work, and to and to fashion this protocol. Uh, and that sense of cooperation, I think, is a pretty good sign going forward. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I mean, Councillor Johnson was really great at um, you know being in touch with people. And, um, and I mean, you know, all of city council um, is, you know, the mayor, you know, representing everybody. It's just like, it feels so good. I feel like in Hamilton, we've, you know, we've got a, a way to really, you know, get in touch with our uh, municipal leaders and, um, and have a voice. And um, yeah, it was, it's just, I feel pretty great that um, the city is on board with this and that they are moving beyond what happened in the past, and we're all moving forward to, um, you know, learn from our mistakes and, uh, and you know, get on with it. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Here's an interesting story. The uh, contractor behind the Tim Horton Field uh, Stadium fiasco is, uh, for all intents and purposes, asking the city for a second chance, uh, suggesting that the litigation about who's going to sue who, who's going to pay for this, and who's going to give me this, etc. What do I have to pay those guys? Uh, he says that's just about settled now. Uh, that's uh, a topic we need to get into as well. But uh, should the city hire these people again? We'll talk about the impact that, uh, that well, some of the screw-ups have had on this community and certainly on the stadium itself. Scott Radley hosted the Scott Radley Show, of course, every weeknight at 7 o'clock here on CHML, and you read his uh, fabulous prose in the Hamilton Spectator Sports pages uh, through the course of the week, too, joins us, uh, who, by the way, hangs out at Tim Horton Field from time to time, uh, so he knows what of he speaks. How are you this morning, sir? Good. I actually call it loitering. Oh, is, <laughs> just, no, just because just just that's what they put on the ticket when they gave it to you. It doesn't necessarily mean it is loitering, okay? Anyway. Uh, yeah, okay, well, I'll, I'll use that when I have to go to court for myself. <laughs> talk, talk to us about this. There's a couple of different elements to this. That I want to talk about uh, the possible end of the litigation that's going forward and the impact that's going to have in a little while. But I, I guess the other question is, I mean, you know, if, if you were sitting around that table, would you say, yeah, all's forgiven, don't worry, we'll consider you for future work? Well, they have got future work, first of all, because the company that is the one who was speaking in front of council yesterday, keep in mind there were two companies that were really yeah. involved in the stadium. One was based in Spain, and this was the Ontario-based part of it. Um, they are the company, or at least one of the contractors, involved in the James Street North Doe Station. So they do have work in this city, again. Um, it's, it's not the... Uh, it, it, so they're not completely shut out yet. But now that this whole thing has come up with the... Um, with the... Should we get another thing, the settlement, everything else... Bill, it's 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 a I don't know, it, and again I'm stumbling here because it's it is a really tough question. And my initial reaction was to say, you know, I know that there are companies that over the years in construction, and you probably know this as well. There are things you can put in, there are clauses you can put into construction contracts where you say, if you're late. If you don't meet the deadlines, there is a punitive penalty. Like for every day, you might be docked fifty thousand bucks or something behind the deadline. And I thought, okay, so sure, let's you know, let's hire them again if you want, but put in really stringent guidelines that say, uh, you know, every day you're behind, it costs you fifty thousand or a hundred thousand dollars. You want to play? There's the rules. The problem is 
that I was talking to a contractor friend of mine, and he explained, yeah, but you know what? The law requires that if you are going to put those kind of clauses into a construction project, the law demands you also reverse it. So that if they finish early, they get the same as a bonus for every day early. They get that amount. So you're in a position now where the city or the province can't really afford to say a project is going to be X dollars and then someone finishes way early and you have to pay a bunch more even though it's done. But you also can't afford to have something like this happen again. So it, you know, it's if I'm sitting around the table, I can't tell you what my answer would be, but I would be very hesitant. I'll be honest with you. I'd be very hesitant to say blank check. Sure, absolutely. Go ahead. You can do whatever you want. Yeah, I'm I'm not a handy guy. Okay, I'm not Mike Holmes. I'm not Brian Baumler. I mean, I you know, I have a pretty good idea which end of a hammer to hold. But I mean, I'm, I I can't build things. To, so I'm not going to sit here as an expert and say, boy, these guys really screwed up. But there are some things, Scott, that you got to think are elementary, like putting the wrong size brackets on speakers. You know, way up there in the sky. You know, on on the those big tall poles and some other things that you figure. This is come on. This is common sense. A lot of this stuff, right? And the, the, I, you got to wonder about the the quality of work that's going on. Well, this discussion, I don't think even happens. I don't think there's even a discussion at city council about future work. To be very honest, if you know, it's a terrifying thing to think about, and we've discussed it before. But if that speaker that was on that bracket has comes down in the middle of a game and someone is killed, we're not even having this discussion. Because there, to me, there's no chance that you've, you've, you've made it so that even if you otherwise had done a terrific job from public, from public relations standpoint, there's no way the city could hire you again, just, just for PR reasons. Uh, it was very fortunate that it happened when the place was empty. But again, um, there, are a lot, there are a lot of qualified, competent, contractors, builders in the city, in this area, in this country. If I'm city council and I've gone through the flack that I've taken as well as a councillor, because the city council has been right in the middle of this whole thing, even though they haven't picked up a hammer. uh, Am I going to have second thoughts at the very least? Like this company can come forward and say, give us another chance. And I fully expect that based on, you know, there will be other projects, and if the numbers come in, if the, what they say they can do it for comes in way lower, city council will go, hmm, all right. But i got to believe it's going to be in the back of their mind. Do we, are we confident in this? And, and that's, I can't tell you what city council is going to think about that. Well, and again, just, you know, go in there with eyes wide open if that's what they're going to do. And, and I don't know these people, and I don't know whom, uh, as, as you mentioned, whether it was the European uh, contractor or the con- Ontario contractor that was responsible for some of the screw-ups here. I assume that's what they're talking about behind closed doors. But, but and uh, by the way, I'm not one of these people that subscribe to this idea that this whole thing was a fiasco anyway. Uh, I like Tim Horton Field. I'm not crazy about the location of it, but it is what it is, and I'm not going to get on that road now. But I, I go there a lot. Uh, I enjoy my experiences at Tim Horton Field. I think a lot of the critics in this community of the project haven't even set foot in there and have not enjoyed any, any of the, uh, the events that have gone on there. So you have to take that into context as well. But as, as somebody who goes up and down the stairs and up the escalators and has had a chance to look around there, uh, now that it's all said and done, is, is this negotiation that's finally going to decide uh, these lawsuits, is that going to put this all behind us so we can just move on? Uh, as far as in general with the stadium or with this particular contractor? With, uh, no, with, in general. 
in general, I mean, is the, is the discussion about the stadium quote quote fiasco over? Um, maybe I don't think it's ever going to go away, Bill. Um, because it's just it was just one of those stories that was so divisive and so much a part of the conversation for so long. If we move along now and for the next 10, 12, 15, 20 years, the stadium is standing as a marvelous edifice that is basically running perfectly and there's no issues and the city can sit back and just and just have a nice stadium to watch football games and concerts if they ever bring another one back. If all that happens, I think it fades away. It doesn't go away, but I think it fades away. But if we get into something where a year or two from now we stumble on something that was unexpected but that comes up again, um, I don't know if you agree or disagree, but I think this whole thing, it, this thing comes back in full throat. If we find that there's some big repair that needs to be done, and I, I don't know of any, I'm not proposing that it will, but if it were to come up like that, I think this discussion the fiasco, the ridiculous stadium thing, everything comes right back to the surface. So it really, um, for this builder, for this council, for a lot of things, uh, a successful run of good, solid, unexciting stadium news is the best thing they could possibly hope for. And and I don't know that that's not going to happen. you know, but I know that after that, uh, the speaker fell down there. I, I mean, you know, the city did a safety audit on the whole stadium, and, and Lloyd Ferguson, who's the chairman of that committee, the stadium uh, subcommittee, told us that I mean, they looked at every every bracket, every screw that had to go into the wall, everything to make sure that everything was going to be okay and safe. So, uh, I know there are no guarantees in life. I mean, even the Olympic Stadium in Montreal started to fall apart. What was that? That was ten years, fifteen years after the uh, the seventy six Olympics. I mean, stuff can happen. We get that. Uh, if you have substandard materials and things like that. So who knows what's going to happen? Well, let, let me but, give you another example. In my business here, writing at the paper, if I make a mistake, I have to write a correction. If I make a huge mistake, people are probably going to know about that, and people are going to say, what an idiot that guy is. I could go for another 10 years without making a single mistake. And, you know, that will still be in the back of people's minds that I had made that kind of enormous gas. But the minute I make another one, Bill, what do you think everyone suddenly says again? Oh, remember, he's the guy who did that. Oh, sure, yeah. Same thing with the stadium. It could be 10 or 15 or 20 years where this stadium is perfect, where nothing goes wrong. But the next time a handrail breaks off, if it, you know, if something, a thing would happen and someone fell down the stairs or whatever, it's always going to be, hey, remember the speaker that fell and almost killed people? That, that, has be, that is one of those moments now, along with all the other stadium stuff, that is never going to be completely forgotten it's always pardon the pun it's always hanging there over people's heads because that was such a visceral thing that capped it was like it was it was the perfect moment to explain the stadium story that had happened from start to finish and then so that will always be there whether they like it or not so we're never going to get over it then I think, as I say, I think we forget to some degree. I think it goes on. I think we get on with the games and everything else. But if something goes wrong, it comes back immediately. I mean, because I, I went into this whole thing not with, with, with I think, legitimate expectations, but not uh, not overly excited about things. You know, like I, we heard all the stories at the time when, uh, when they announced that they were going to rebuild it at the same site, that it was mm-hmm. going to be a catalyst for development in the neighborhood. And I, I, I never bought into that. And, and because I, I, that I, well, I, cause I never thought it was going to happen in the first place. And as a matter of fact, if you'd build it downtown, the same thing would have happened. That stadiums are not catalysts unless, unless you have a tenant like the Toronto Blue Jays or the Toronto Raptors that are going to play there three times a week. 
people aren't just going to go there, they, especially at a football stadium, uh, you know, where it's essentially from you know, basically June until November. And, and after that, the place sits empty. That's all there is to it. And, and go you to see downtown Baltimore. Go, Baltimore is the perfect example. Downtown Baltimore, if you've ever been there, Bill, was 25 years ago was frightening. It was an absolutely frightening place to be. And they built Camden Yards for the baseball stadium, and they have 81 home games a year, and suddenly now stuff pops up around it. And then they built the football stadium nearby. But nobody would have built up any restaurants or bars or anything if it had been the football stadium by itself, and you have eight dates a year. Who's going to build a restaurant to feed people eight times a year? You need, And so you're right. The, the football stadium is a tough sell to be a catalyst for mi- massive development. You need other things. Now, will we, with the Bernie Morelli Center and the school and everything, will that combined with the stadium lead to some things we'll see we'll see but the stadium itself is not the answer no no and 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 i never had any expectation that was going to be all i wanted was a a comfortable facility that was going to be good for going to watch football games and and i think we've got that for all intents and purposes i mean you know we go to the games i i I haven't been to the press box yet haven't been invited uh but you know down in in our lowly always invited (laughs) down in our i know listen i see you and drew and and milton everybody else and they just kind of wave by now we're going up to our, our 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 box seats up there you know in our you know, luxury boxes up there in the press box, and I, I try to get by with where Rebecca and I are sitting, and we're happy with that. You know, we're it's a it's a meager existence, but we're completely happy with it. So, so I I, I got to wonder what people are expecting out of this, and because every time this comes up, and here it was again, another story about this, and and I'm getting the same feedback on on Twitter and on emails right now, like, oh, yeah, what a fiasco this was. Well, yeah, it was the way it was constructed, but it was out of city council's hands. Yeah, they probably built it in the wrong place. But but it is where it is right now. I just want to turn the page, and I don't think any some people in this community are ever going to do that. There's one other part about this story, Bill, and you just touched on it that we forget about. If this construction had been behind, if we let, let's imagine for a second that the building of the stadium happened in a vacuum. So yes, it was behind. Yes, the speaker bracket, the speaker fell, all that kind of stuff. But if this had been built at West Harbor or Confederation Park, somewhere where there had been less divisiveness about the the thing and if there hadn't been the how long was it two years of fighting for the location beforehand that have ended up with yeah pretty everybody much, yeah. in the city having a hard opinion if there had been some consensus and it had you know it was going to go in west harbor and that's where the city decided it was going to be and before everyone had a chance to get all bent out of shape we said fine it's going in west harbor and construction started and then you had some construction delays i truly believe there would have still been some shots taken at it, but it wouldn't have been the way it was. The construction issue that we're talking about was a symptom of the anger that had come from the whole war about where it was going to be. By the time they put shovels in the ground, half or more than half the community was so angered about the whole stadium thing that anything that had gone wrong was going to set them off. It really was. And then they got ammunition. So it was, it was the worst of two worlds. It was the worst of both worlds. If this had just gone very smoothly and the construction had started at West Harbor or wherever the city council had decided very quickly, again, I don't think we're talking about this like we are right now. People were so angry by that point that they wanted to go off on anything, and they were given an opportunity to do that. 
the one thing that I think may assuage some people's frustration and anger here is if they started using the stadium in some of the ways in which they talked about. Uh, in other words, mm. concerts. I mean, the Keith Urban concert was incredible. It was a great yep. night. The stadium wasn't even filled then. Uh, is it because they couldn't use the uh, the upper uh, reaches back then because it wasn't heading past the safety? Uh, but you want to start seeing more of those. And, and, and maybe, you know, Bob Young says he's going to bring a soccer team in here, and it sounds like that's going to happen at some point anyway. But more usage, I think, and, and more people going in there for various things like that, I think would probably give people a little bit higher comfort level with what's gone on. I've been very puzzled by the lack of concerts, I'll be honest, because the first one, now, I, I didn't see the financials. Uh, I don't know if that was, you know, a, a huge money loser. I don't know. But I can tell you that every single person, Bill, that I've ever spoken to about the Keith Urban concert spoke glowingly about it and said it was fantastic. It was. And, and so if that's the case, you go, well, why not more? Unless maybe it was too big a, a job to bring in. Maybe it was too, I don't know what the reasons would be. But you're right. Not everybody is a football fan. It's, I mean, it's just reality. Not everybody is a Ticat fan. Not everybody is a football fan. This is supposed to be a community place, a community theater, essentially. And that's one of the ways that you can make it a community thing. I've, I've, I've been very puzzled by the lack of concerts since then. Well, I was told uh, by a reliable source that one of the reasons for that was this litigation mess. Uh, who, okay. n- nobody knows who's paying whom and, and who owes whom, et cetera, and they have to get all that settled before they can start working together on that. I don't know if that's true or not, but I've heard it from a couple of different sources. So, so maybe, Well, that makes some sense. Yeah. If that's true, then it, we should be seeing some concerts maybe this summer. You'd like to think so. And and maybe maybe that'll help. And and all I can say, <laughs> we got to get out of here in just a second. Uh, if 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 people are still harboring this resentment, although well, I shouldn't have said harbor and stadium in the same sentence. Anyway, uh, <laughs> what's going to happen when they start having the serious discussions about what they're going to do with First Ontario Centre? Are we going to go through this whole thing all over again? No, and the reason is because I got the sense very strongly that there is almost nobody on this council that is going to allow us to go down this road again. They are they are gun-shy, and probably rightly so. I don't see any reasonable chance that anybody on council is going to say, you know what, yeah, I think we should start pouring $70 million of municipal money that we don't have into a hockey arena. They are not. I'll be shocked, Bill if they were to open that door and let that argument begin. Because I think they've seen with over the years with Red Hill Creek and with the stadium and with a few other things with LRT, oh, LRT, um, the last thing that this council wants to do is walk into the middle of another minefield and start dancing around going, okay, how are we going to now get out of this quicksand? Pardon the mixed metaphors. But, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a it, – it, there, there seems to me no chance that any of them have an appetite to rekindle and restart another situation like this. So I don't see any, I don't, I honestly don't see any chance that something happens to First Ontario Centre unless, and I know you got to go, but unless, and this is the one thing that was interesting, I talked to Councillor Skelly about this the other day, and she didn't say they were going to, but I said, would, do you think City Council would ever consider, since you can't apparently afford to fix it and it's needing fixing, and you can't just let it run down, could you ever see selling it to a private sector investor or consortium? And she said, you know, that might be what ends up happening. Then you might get the thing fixed. If it was sold, if the city sold it to private investors with the guarantee that this must be a theater slash concert venue slash arena on that site, then you might see some fix-ups. 
The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.